Hello, you're listening to Just Screen It, Case Studies in Creative Distribution. I am your host, Colin Stryker, and I am not an expert in creative or self-distribution. I am an independent filmmaker working towards making my first narrative feature a horror film entitled The Grove. As I've been contemplating my own eventual distribution strategy, I've been looking seriously at self-distribution as an option, but I found there's not a lot of data out there to really understand how it's worked for people. So I decided to start this podcast to help capture some of the experiences of those who have already been through it, whether successful or otherwise, and from those experiences, help both listeners and myself better understand this really crazy, complex landscape of independent film distribution today. So each week, I'll be bringing on a filmmaker who has self-distributed or been personally involved in the distribution of their film. My hope is that future filmmakers can take the knowledge gleaned from the show and use it to make their own decisions on how to best distribute their films. Hey, everybody. So I know I always start off by saying I'm really excited to bring you my conversation with whoever it is at the time. Uh, and uh, I, I am always excited because I always have great, interesting conversations with my guests. But that being said, I am really, really, really extra excited today to bring you my conversation with Liz Manischel. Uh, Liz is, as she states in the interview, first and foremost, a filmmaker. She's made two feature films, one with more or less traditional distribution, the second with a hybrid distribution strategy, and she is on to make her third feature, Best Friends Forever, which she intends to self-distribute entirely. Liz came to my attention through the Making Movies is Hard podcast, for which she is a co-host. Uh, it's a great podcast, by the way, highly recommended for independent filmmakers. But what really interested me about Liz was the uh, Patreon campaign she's running in support of her third feature. Uh, I'm sure Liz could describe it better than I can, um, but basically her idea is to document and memorialize the uh, making of her feature uh, in order to help educate other filmmakers on what it's like to develop, make, and release an independent feature film. Uh, it's kind of similar to what I'm doing with my own website, my own feature film. Uh, so when I heard she was doing this, I knew I needed to find out more. So I became a Patreon supporter myself, and I'm really looking forward to hearing about her experience as she goes along. Uh, Liz is also a distribution consultant. She managed Sundance's Creative Distribution Initiative. Uh, she has so much to offer here about the world of independent film and distribution. Uh, we touch on all of that and more in the interview. So without further ado, delay, or blabber, I am proud to bring you my conversation with Liz Manischel. To start out, I'm going to try to bounce back what I've heard in my ear so many times, which is that you've made two features bread of butter and speed of life. You managed Sundance's creative distribution initiative. You are a sales and distribution consultant. And which you don't say on your podcast, which you also are, is the co-host of the Making Movies is a Hard podcast, which is one of my favorite podcasts. And it's kind of how I got to know you in the first place. So anyway, I'm really glad to have you on to talk about both your experiences and just distribution in general. I know you have a lot to say about it. I know our listeners will get a lot out of it. And listeners should look you up and follow you if they don't already know who you are. But let's assume that they don't know who you are, which I'm sure a lot of them do. But if you just expand a little bit on the little background that I just gave, like, you know, how did you get started? How did you get into filmmaking? And we'll go from there. Does that sound good? Sure. 
I love being called an expert and I love working in sales and distribution, but I do like when I introduce myself, maybe not on the podcast, but when I meet people, I say, I'm a filmmaker first and foremost. And that's my first priority. Sure. And And I didn't mean by the way to like (laughs) not focus on that aspect of it. That is totally okay. It is just this weird thing where our mutual friend, Clinton Cornwell is always just trying to remind me, you know, that we're artists too. Right. (laughs) And so I have to have this little inner monologue of, you know, say that you're an artist too. remind, remind yourself and remind others. I knew I wanted to be a filmmaker when I was 16 and I saw a pretentious French film that convinced me for some reason (laughs) that I wanted to be a filmmaker. And then Tell me, what was the film? You got to tell me. (laughs) It's called Stolen Kisses. It's by Francois Truffaut. It's in his Antoine Doinel thing. Yeah, I don't think I've seen it, it, but I've heard of it. Yeah, I've only seen it once, but it it made a profound impact on me. I'm afraid to watch it again, to be honest. (laughs) And I knew I wanted to be a filmmaker, but I was terrified I didn't know how, and I was scared to start. And I would say every day since that moment of deciding to become a filmmaker, I'm just trying to become a filmmaker. Like I'm just trying to become a better filmmaker. So like the additional context of me is that everything I do informs my sales work and my sales work informs me as an artist. And I'm trying to create a little ecosystem where my day job pays back dividends, not just a salary, but pays back experience and wisdom for the long haul of being an artist. Yeah, totally makes sense. Great words. So we'll get to talking about distribution. We'll have tons to say about distribution, I'm sure. But before we get there, maybe just talk about how you got into making your first feature. I don't know if you have like a history of making a bunch of shorts before you did that, or you just jumped right in. So yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. I went to USA Film School and I got in, I had made two shorts and neither made sense. The USC seems to like a lot of beginning filmmakers that they Mm. can come in and mold. I don't know why that was the impression that I got. I was very confused why (laughs) why they accepted me when I had not made many things. I wrote like a pretty passionate personal statement about wanting to be a filmmaker. And I went to USC and I actually focused in documentary. I graduated having directed and edited two documentary theses producing someone else's fiction thesis and with a script. I pretty much graduated with almost every requirement that you needed when you only needed one. I was an overachiever. And I left in 2010. And the writer's strike was in 2007, 2008, but it was still really, really hard to get a job in 2010. And so I took... Look, I don't think my former boss is ever going to listen to this, but I'll just say like I took a job that gave me some experience, but was a little bit of an unorthodox job where I was Mm. like picking up his kids while also helping him produce sizzle reels. He was a multicam TV director. And the story I tell, which is really the story I've told like once before, it's not like a story I tell, (laughs) is I was taking his poop to the colonoscopy doctor. I did not expect you to say the word poop I know, there. That's so, why I wow. like to say okay. it that way. <laughs> um, and I was like, I have a terminal degree from the best film school in the country. Oh, and this is where I am. I'm bringing someone's poop to the doctor for them. And this has nothing to do with what yeah. I want to do with my life. And so that was a wake up call for me. And without having made really, I mean, very few fiction shorts because I focus in documentary. I was like, fuck it. I'm making my feature. Yeah. And I I just started telling people, holding myself accountable, 
We fundraised in 2012. We shot it in 2013. Festivals 2014, released in 2015. Wow. Okay. Yeah, you just dove right in then. What was the approximate budget of that, if you remember, if you don't mind my asking? It was about 100. Yeah. Okay. I can even tell you... I. I've done this in the past. I'll see if the math will add up, but it was about $36,000 in Kickstarter funds. It was about $15,000 in credit card debt, maybe maybe more than that, maybe fifteen dollars to $20,000 in credit card. I was, it was my first credit card, so I had a pretty yeah. high limit. <laughs> wow. You were like, okay, my first credit card. I'm not going <laughs> to hold back. I'm going to make a feature film. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had maybe $9,000 in savings. I had two equity investors at the 10 and 15K level. And then I, I, I've stopped counting, but I don't think I'm near 100,000. What else? There's like was a speed of life, right? Oh, that was bread and butter. I'm sorry, bread and butter. No, no, no. That's I got that fine. Wrong. My parents found a savings bond that they had forgotten that they had gotten taken out in my name huh? around the same time that oh, we were in cool. pre-production. Right. And it wasn't millions of dollars, but it was enough to get us to 100K. And so it was a combination of soft money, a lot of soft money, personal debt, and then this savings bond that got yeah. us there. Cool. And this was around, I think you said around 2012, 2013 timeframe. So this is definitely mm-hmm. a time when the distribution landscape is changing rapidly, I imagine. We got in right before it went to shit. 2015, I think was like okay. 2015, 2016 were like the last hopeful years, mm-hmm. I would say. Mm-hmm. And then I think we began our, the way I see it, begin our decline yeah. <laughs> around yeah. then. Liz is making a, a very deep hand motion here <laughs> showing the decline. Okay. So we're definitely going to get to that, but I'm just kind of curious, like as you're embarking on this project, are you thinking about distribution at this point, or are you really just thinking, I'm going to make my film and not think about distribution until later? Because I think I was, a lot of filmmakers do go into it like that. They're just like, I just yeah. want to make a movie, you know, and fuck all the rest. <laughs> I committed every atrocity that I make film, fun filmmakers for to this day. Yeah. I was working for a distribution consultant. It was uh, one of my part-time jobs was working for a right. distribution consultant. I didn't understand anything he was talking about. Hmm. And it didn't, like none of it through osmosis, maybe in the back of my mind, right? But it, it yeah. really didn't click. And I did the same thing that everyone else does. I was like, we have really low overhead, so we're definitely going to profit. <laughs> Jump on this moving train. We're going to be a success story. Like just all of these absurd things that we have to say because we're trying to build a team. Yeah. Ultimately, I had no case studies to provide any sense of faith or confidence. I didn't have a investor deck. I think I had like a PowerPoint and I've never really done an investor deck slash business plan, mm-hmm. but I did like a PowerPoint with comps and like goals. And it was more like a um, lookbook than yeah. anything. Right. Yeah. And the reason people invested in me was not because I was like, hey, this is going to make you money. They pitied me. They were like, <laughs> this woman is really passionate. And 2013, that was like, a little bit after Lena Dunham. I mean, we had all these women in film who were starting to crop up. Mm-hmm. And I think that was, I wrote a very like the tail end of someone's coattails, mm. I think. Interesting. And 
the two investors that came on, one was someone who heard about my film. It was, it was a woman who worked in finance that I had worked on a short film with, and she did a small investment. And then she got her former boss who tended to invest in women entrepreneurs hmm. to put some money into. It wasn't people who were like, I'm a shark and I'm going to make my money back. It, it was kind of like a patronage right. model, okay. I would say. Right. Which is, I think, how a lot of films get put together, uh, you know, yeah. at, at this kind of micro budget level. I mean, you know, and if you're not putting together your package that way, you're probably being deceptive, right? If you're, if yeah. you're trying, if you're as a producer trying to sell an investor on the idea that they, they really have like a great hope of making their money back, then you're, you're full of shit, right? We all know that. The, Which we, it, well, we didn't know. I would say it, that you don't know what you don't know, right? Yeah, so yeah, you, yeah, totally. You, they, I was full of shit. I know other filmmakers. Well, I didn't mean to accuse you of being full of shit, by the way. No, I was were, though. Believe okay. <laughs> okay. I just want to make sure it doesn't come for me. No, I, I mean, I'm just saying that you described your investors as not being sort of serious. I'm going to make my money. I'm going to make a profit investors. Right. So they knew what they were doing. I think even if you'd maybe didn't, you know, ultimately I'm still writing them checks. So okay. like, that's, yeah. what's kind of fantastic about the whole right. scenario. And I'm happy to talk about that or, or at any point, but you know, you go in thinking movies are made for millions of dollars. Of course, if I make a movie for a hundred thousand dollars, I'm going to, I'm going to be able to pay people back and everything's going to be fine. But that was hard one. It was very hard one. And we're still almost at recoupment and not quite. Wow. And it's what, you know, like 10 years later, but eight years. Yeah. But yeah. Very, very sorry. Yeah. 2015 was really when you released it. Right. But Yeah. yeah, I mean, Yeah, that is one thing that you can say is I think, I I mean, I don't know if it's streaming or what, but there's a long tail of revenue that can come from movies like that. And I don't, you know, you're probably not making much, I would imagine, but it's making like $50 a quarter at this point. Right. Making nothing. That's still something, you know, so kind of cool, even though it's nothing really. (laughs) Yeah. Actually, can I just just take a pause and ask you to describe the movie a little bit, just to put that in context? Mm, Yeah. I'm a late bloomer and I didn't really start dating until I got to film school. And I was in a screenwriting class at the same time that I started. I had essentially a a romantic decision in front of me. I'd never been in demand. And I was like, I'm in demand for the first time. (laughs) And so I wrote a semi-autobiographical romantic comedy about the two options that I had in front of me. And I combined it with the idea I had and then have had for a while about a woman who tracks down a man because of the marginalia, the the scribblings and the margins of a book that she found. And so the idea is one of the men in real life that I was dating, he was going through a mental break. Mm -hmm. And so the film is about how romantic an experience may cause you to misinterpret that. For like an eccentric character, (laughs) the tagline for the film is love can drive you crazy. And so it's, it's about romantic idealism and immaturity. Okay. Sounds, sounds cool. I, it's actually been on my list to watch it and I wish I could have actually watched it before this interview, but had so much going on. I have watched your other film, by the way, uh, speed of life. Enjoyed that. So, uh, we, we can talk about, you know, when we get there, I can maybe talk a little bit more about it anyway. 
Cool. So with regard to like the distribution experience of that, obviously you learned some lessons, you know, let's move on to kind of what happened after that, unless you have anything else you want to kind of add about that experience that you think is important well, or relevant. Just an acknowledgement that like the majority of our funds for that film came from a Hulu deal that our distributor didn't even think that we would get Ah, okay. a couple airline deals and a few licensing opportunities, but these were things like that don't happen anymore. That the Hulu licensing mm. fee we got in 2015, 2016, any of my films would never garner that yeah. high of a price. Yeah. And that then was, that was like an upfront fee. Yeah, it was an upfront yeah. fee. I mean, split uh, court into quarterly payments, but yes, right. it was it was an SVOD licensing fee uh-huh. through Hulu. We got on Hulu. We were on the front page of Hulu, right? Yeah. I mean, like, it was a very, very big deal. But, like, we were not the film that people thought was going to succeed. In fact, we world premiered at a, a festival that I love called Woodstock Film Festival. And the head of the festival called us the little film that could. Huh. Like, it, it wasn't – you don't look at our movie and think automatically that's going to be a success. It's like – awkward 30 year old virgin, you know, <laughs> film inspired by Hal Hartley and with Stillman, like it's right. not necessarily. So just recognize that I think we were a little bit of an oddball yeah. of a film and and a little bit unconventional. Yeah. Okay, cool. And also like, I realized that I sort of actually brushed over what the distribution experience of that was like. So, you know, I'm okay focusing on that a little bit more. Like, did you, did you ever get a sales agent at any point? Did you play a lot of festivals at any point? Like, how did you actually end up getting the Hulu deal, for instance? We played like somewhere in 12 to 15 film festivals. And I submitted on the, like the last day to Woodstock Film Festival and I cast the film myself and Bobby Moynihan from Saturday Night Live was in the movie. And I think Woodstock really likes to bring in New York centric actors and films. Yeah. So we premiered at Woodstock and they did a press release. Sometimes distributors will look at press releases from film festivals and they'll track down the filmmakers to get screeners. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what a sales, I'm a sales rep now. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what a sales rep did. <laughs> I didn't know that I was supposed to get one. Yeah. So that wasn't really an option. I think I was approached by a few that seemed a little scummy and yeah. that didn't seem like a good pathway. So the reason I mentioned this is the distributor that we ended up going with, I think she saw the announcement on Woodstock and then she looked up the cast mm. and she saw that the cast had Lauren Lapkus, who is a comedian that she really liked. Mm-hmm. And so she requested the screener. And then my boss, out of the kindness of his heart, uh, the distribution consultant, negotiated the contract for me. Mm. Oh, wow. And so we worked with a company called The Orchard, who turned out to be a very, very cool rock and roll distributor that was somewhat short-lived. Mm-hmm. Um, they turned into 1091. Mm -hmm. Uh, which was just bought by screen media a few months ago. So they're on their own weird journey. But Mm -hmm. that being said, like hunt for the wilder people, what we do in the shadows, like Mm -hmm. those were orchard films. Yeah. I was so proud to be in their company, but it was a straight distribution deal. It was a rev share. I think we were really thought of just passive income for them. Mm -hmm. They were just acquiring us. Mm -hmm. Looking back, I can interpret this, right? But at the time- I didn't know any of this, but it was a very big deal that that they wanted us. And then 
because we were packaged with other cool films, that's how we got the Hulu deal is that like the other titles Um, were more high profile than ours. So in general, the strength of their catalog helped us for all of the wins that we got along the way. Yeah. I'm sure that's a, that's a win that you'll take though, right? Even oh if, my God. Even if you're not like at the, at the top of the marquee or what have you, just being on the sure. <laughs> on the marquee is always cool. So yeah, yeah, cool. And can you comment sort of on your experience with Orchard? Like how has that worked out over the years as they, they've transformed? I mean, are, are you still... Are you still getting your money through them or have the rights kind of reverted back to you and, and they're not involved anymore? Well, because they turned into 1091, 1091 is the now the one issuing me the checks. Okay. But all the point people are gone. Like my whole distribution team is gone. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the experience of working with the Orchard, looking back, knowing what I know now, they were great. They mm-hmm. were they responded to emails. They were thoughtful. Mm-hmm. They believed in the film. At the time, I felt like I was floundering. I thought I had an unsuccessful film. Mm -hmm. And one day I decided, fuck this. I'm going to go and I'm going to tell them that our film is successful. And I'm going to start writing press pieces about how successful it is. Mm. And I'm going to ask them for pull quotes. And I'm going to get on their radar. And I'm going to reverse engineer a success through the press. And I know that sounds... Weird. I'm not saying like I know the New York Times, but I decided to write transparently about my film as a case study mm-hmm. in an effort to con- <laughs> to manipulate the truth and convince people that we were a successful film. Mm-hmm. And I said to them, tell me some numbers that sound successful that I can use in this case mm. study. And they did. And then... And then every time I got more attention, I think it put the film back on their radar again, oh. right? Like it didn't, I didn't proceed into the background and I kept right. on promoting the film. Right. So there are a lot of regrets I have. I should have promoted pre-sales way more than I did. I should have taken out ads. I should have done way more than I, than I, um, than the effort I put forth, but Using my film as an educational tool to teach other filmmakers about how to make and micro-budget films, that's, I think, provided a a lifespan that I wouldn't normally have had in this movie. For sure. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And I think, like, not that you couldn't see it in just going out and making your own feature, but also just you can see the sort of, like, do-it-yourself kind of attitude that I know that you have, you know, just coming out through there. Like, this this isn't you didn't want this to just be somebody's back catalog movie. You wanted it to be yeah. more than that. And so you kept at it, you know, which I think is a really important lesson for <laughs> filmmakers. Like once you're done with your film, even if it gets picked up, it's on the internet, like you're not done. I mean, if you want to be done, you you're can never be done. done, but yeah, you're never done. Yeah. I still yeah. send people links at bread and butter. Like I still. Yeah. 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 Well, you're going to get me to watch it eventually, you know, uh, <laughs> when I get around to having enough time to watch it. Get movies. ready for lots of masturbation because the oh, film oh, oh, has oh, wow. lots okay. of masturbation going. <laughs> Just warning you, it's All not right. really family I, viewing. Yeah, no problem. I won't watch it with my kid then. I'll watch it, you know, by myself or with my wife, maybe. I don't know. Right. But anyway, <laughs> you know, whatever. You. Yeah, cool. Um, so, yeah, anything else kind of to say before we move on in your experience? perspective was really important. Like, I think it's so funny how 
I was so down on myself when the film came out. I thought I really had fucked up, you know, I thought I had failed. So did you have this kind of like this kind of vision in your head of like the South by what? Yeah. Or or just like that kind of like leftover indie film narrative of the nineties or whatever it was, you know, all that, those dreams that all of those filmmakers had of like getting discovered at Sundance and picked up by Miramax, which obviously representation, I don't have anything to do with Miramax anymore, but yeah, like (laughs) all of that, like that whole dream that you're just going to make it big. You're going to get a million dollars, you know, and you're off to the races. Right. I don't even know if I had specific, I, I didn't know enough to know that there were different tiers of landmarks that you yeah. could achieve. I didn't know what a big deal the Hulu thing was, you know, until, you know, years afterwards. But I would say that at the time I was so down on myself and wow. I just thought I had failed. Yeah. And even this manufacturing of the case study and telling people also successful and telling everyone we're, you know, how much revenue we've made. That was, those were acts of desperation. Those mm-hmm. weren't acts of like self-esteem or confidence. Right. Yeah. And then somehow like I manipulated others and myself <laughs> into feeling really proud of everything that we've done. And so now I'm, I look back and um, just an acknowledgement that I think as filmmakers, you have the highest, most exalted goals in your mind yeah. And it's, you're going to have to go through heartbreak every time you make a movie. Yeah. Great, great words. I mean, I don't mean to say great, but great words, you know, great wise words. Uh, Yeah. Appreciate that. Um, So then moving on, like, how did you kind of pick up the pieces and move on to your next project? What was that like? In 2016, like a year after the release, I was like, I got to make another one. I got to make another one. (laughs) And I think even before then, but I did, I crowdfunded for my second feature prematurely. And it was, uh, I thought it was going to be a horror film and it was called plan B. And it, it, it was about a woman whose ex, her, her widow, her widow who had died comes back to haunt her. And I realized after crowdfunding the $16,000, a much different total in 2016, that I didn't like that script. And Mm. so I turned it into a much different movie. David Bowie died and it it changed kind of the trajectory of (laughs) of the narrative of the film. It turned it into like a sci-fi May, December romance. And I can break down a little bit of the financing of that, but basically as someone, I wanted to have kids and I really wanted to be pregnant while on set. And so I put myself and my biological clock on this this pressure cooker of a schedule to make my second feature as soon as possible and to time the conception of my first child at the exact same time. Wow. Uh, What is it about you and making features and having children? Because you're doing the same thing now. I know. I'm doing it now, too. Uh, I think it's just like by the time we get our movies off the ground, you know, I mean, my first film at, I think I was 27 when we, I'm trying to do the math. Oh, my God. I can't do the math. I don't know. I was, I I remember we picture locked before I turned 30, um, which is an arbitrary, stupid landmark to celebrate. But at the time, it was very important to me. Yep. And then five years later was my next film and I'm gearing up to geriatric stage of pregnancy because that's what society is like imposing on you. So I guess my perspective was 
I used it as momentum. I used it as personal momentum to get the project off the ground and then learn too late that you shouldn't, you shouldn't rush the creative process. Mm. Right. So. Yeah. I think it's always a, a hard lesson. What, what is it they say about art? It's, it's, it's never finished. It's just abandoned. Right. And you can say the same yeah. thing about like building up to making something, not just finishing it, but like at some point you just have to shit or get off the pot and make your movie, yeah. you know? And so it's always a balance, I think, between spending 10 years developing your project or just getting it done, you know? So that makes yeah. sense. So maybe the, you know, the timing of, of, of getting pregnant is what helps you like <laughs> make those decisions. I don't know. But anyway, you were saying that you probably made it too soon or maybe I misinterpreted what you, what you meant. Yeah. There. I think that I, I was like, well, I didn't break out with my first feature. I'm going to break out with my second mm. feature. I got to get it done as soon as possible. I want to start a family. Like I just started imposing all these external goals and pressures on myself. And I was very proud of the script and it felt like it was ready and people were responding to it. Like we got wonderful cast yeah. to attach themselves. But I think retroactively, there's a lot we cut from the film and the edit that we cut because it wasn't as integrated into the script as, as it should have been. Mm -hmm. And I think people may have given me a pass or didn't, I wasn't hard enough on myself or mm. a point being like very proud of the film, but you know, I'm proud of everyone's work on it, but I think that it could have been better and it could have benefited from more creative development. And instead I was like, no, yeah, <laughs> I'm making it, you know? Yep. Yeah. I, I mean, I totally understand that. And I, I, I don't know. I, I appreciate your level of kind of introspection in looking back and being able to self-reflect on, you know, what you could have done differently. And, and, you know, maybe not, not just being like, Oh, I made the best movie in the world, blah, 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 blah. You know, I mean, I enjoyed it. I thought it was, I thought it was yeah. a nice movie, but I, I'll be honest. I thought there could have been things improved about it. And I'm comfortable sure. saying that with you, you know, and you know, it's always a learning experience. Right. So um, you know, hopefully you bring those learning experiences and the learning experiences from your first film into your next film, you know, and then maybe the next film is, is the great breakout. And I think that's, you know, one thing that I hear people in on podcasts, you know, especially in the micro budget realm talk about is to view your, you know, view making movies as sort of steps, you know, mm -hmm. not view it as like, I'm going to make this movie and I'm going to be a huge success. And then I'm going to be worshipped as a filmmaker for the rest of my life, you know, uh, you know, no, there, there are, there are ways and it probably makes much more sense for most filmmakers to think of each film they make as just a, a series of steps. And maybe one will be a breakout success, but maybe that success is just something that kind of builds up gradually rather than just this big, huge thing that happens all of a sudden, you know, it shouldn't so. be about the trappings or right. the, um, signifiers of success. You know, sure. it's like, I was obsessed with the idea of breaking out, but ultimately what did I learn on this film yeah. and what did I get better at? And I think had I not, I mean, like we cut out an entire B storyline from the film. Huh. That's why it's so short. And my husband was the lead of the B storyline oh. and that's fun. Excise him from yep. many scenes that he was very, very good in. Yeah. But it just felt false because I didn't think they were well written. Mm -hmm. But just acknowledging that, like, 
that was a lesson hard one, right? Mm -hmm. Is, Mm -hmm. is like, I could have done better by him. I could have done better by the film. We made a sci-fi time travel film for a hundred thousand dollars in one location. It's going to feel restricted. It's going to feel like you can't, people are going to wonder why haven't they left this room? Why haven't they left this building? You know, it's like all the limits are, are obvious, but when you're making it, you're like, Oh, how convenient. Like I can line up all these elements to tell the story. And then looking back and something I'm working on is like, is this as good as it can be? Is this the best writing? Is this the best process? Am I having fun? I wasn't Mm -hmm. really having fun making Mm -hmm. that movie either. So that's too bad. You know, just like a few of those elements are contributing to how I'm making this next movie. Oh, sounds good. So we're going to get there. Um, But let's talk about Speed of Life a little bit more just in terms of distribution. Um, You know, where did where did that go? So so you finished that in what about what year? We released in January 2020, but kind of December 2019. Okay. And I had my son in February of 2019. So Seven months earlier, I had I went through post production being pregnant. I miscarried on the last day of our shoot, and then got pregnant a few months later. Oh, and then um, I know so fun. Thanks, thanks for sharing that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. That's, I'm uh, nothing if not you're so uh, yeah. For share. You're, you're so transparent. <laughs> and so <laughs> I'm sorry, when you're laughing. You just said you had a no. It's fine. I mean, it was but, a very yeah, early, yeah. and I got yeah. the I got the good kid. I got right. the <laughs> best kid. So yeah. like, I'm yeah. fine. Like, well, it's same name as me. So you know. Yes. What can, what can you say? <laughs> my my son Colin is the best. You are also great, but I'm just gonna say my <laughs> no, son no. Colin is the best person in the universe. So. Yep. I, Whatever happened to get us there, I'm happy no with. I'm happy um, to be the second best person in the universe. That's fine <laughs> with me. <laughs> Behind your son, Colin. No, go ahead. Well, well, just acknowledging that, like, the when you compound your life events, you don't make the best decisions, right? Yeah, right. So, you know, I was pregnant. I was in, you know, we, we were in the NICU at one point. Like, there was all these things with the birth and labor and delivery. So we were figuring out post-production. I was pumping during the mix because I had had a baby. So um, all of those things are kind of hard to extrapolate and figure out the timeline of. There was like a lot overlapping with each other. But the distribution, I floated the film myself to a few a few companies. Like I think I sent it to Gunpowder and Sky who did sci-fi and uh, I played film festivals and a few entities reached out, but ultimately I had been working with this company called Giant through my work at Sundance. And I had thought at the time, my feelings have evolved since, but I had thought at the time that they were really honest, really kind, easy to communicate with and would do right by my film. So Mm -hmm. I did a combination of, I did hybrid distribution Mm -hmm. with Speed of Life. I did a blockchain release. Hmm. Um, I did my own theatrical. I did my own airlines. And I kept non-theatrical rights so I could screen at like colleges, universities, community Mm -hmm. centers. Mm -hmm. And then Giant took digital rights and they made a deal with Showtime. Mm. So for the first... Two years, we couldn't be anywhere other than transactional and showtime. Hmm. 
And it wasn't a lot of money, but for me to be able to say I was on Showtime, I was yeah. on the channel that had Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. Right. It was like very, very cool yep. for me. Yep. Prestige value. <laughs> Prestige value. Right, yeah. right, right. Cool. You kind of alluded to this a little bit. Did your relationship with that distributor not go so well in the end? Uh, feel free not to comment what as they much did or for me. as you want. Yeah. Okay. But I'm a sales rep. And so yeah. now I learn more context of all these companies oh, and I stop idealizing them. Right. And I'm a fiercely loyal person. But when someone does something that I can't get over, it's hard, you know, it's hard for me to get over it. Like, so I'd say they didn't commit any infractions against me, but they did break the hearts of one of my clients. Mm. And so now I can't forgive them, (laughs) even (laughs) though they're my distributor, you know, it's this awkwardness. I would say they were very, they made a few mistakes, but they're all forgivable in terms of the release of speed of life, but they were very flexible mm-hmm. and they were a good partner. But at the time, had I do it all, I, were, were I to do it all over again, I would do what I do for my clients, which is I would really go everywhere and I'd pitch everyone and I'd just see what is the interest and where is it? And let's make a decision that's actually educated instead of the easy thing that's right in front of me. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I'm really happy because I learned I got an MG from the blockchain release. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I got a little money from the hospitality deal that I brokered myself. Mm-hmm. I booked my own theatrical, which I've never done before. Mm-hmm. And people think we were successful because we were on Showtime. They don't know how little money we made. Right, right. But I have the optics of of some excitement with the yeah. film. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so, and what was the budget of that one? Around a hundred. Around a hundred again. And have you seen anything close to recoupment on that one? We'll probably get halfway there. Like, okay. I would say we'll probably hit. Like, I think we're up, we're close to maybe a gross of fifty mm-hmm. right now, and I don't see that getting better ever. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, how does that? You know. If you can speak to that, which I think you will, how does that feel? Like, are you, because you you kind of envisioned bread and butter as kind of not being a success. Then you kind of made these efforts to kind of turn it into a success. How about yeah. Speed of Life? I use the data in my own work, right? Uh-huh. Like I go and when I talk to a filmmaker and I say transactional is dead. I go, yeah, I grossed like $6,000 in transactional. Yeah. Like I have access to the data. Do I think it's the marketplace? Yeah, for sure. It's half the marketplace. It's content is devalued. Netflix, the rise of Netflix, Mm -hmm. the willingness of people to pay for content is just completely decreased. Just like the value of art as a commodity is is gone from society unless you're paying $30 to go see a Marvel movie in a movie theater. It's different for independent film. So it's say... I can I can see that with objectivity. I certainly think that had I made a stronger film, I may be doing a little bit better. Mm-hmm. But I I worked with Spencer Lindsay to make the most badass trailer. I'm so proud of our trailer. I love our one sh- like I love our key art. It may not be it may not be what the distributor wanted, but it's gorgeous mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. We were an entertainment weekly, like we were, you know, there's been 
cool things. Yeah. But no, financially, I'm bummed out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, but and that's, that's okay. Uh, yeah, that's okay. I mean, I think it's like, you should never put enough money into it, especially if it's your own money, but whatever. You should never put enough money into it that anybody gets seriously hurt by that money not coming back, right? Yeah. You should never cause pain spending your, making your movie <laughs> to yeah. anybody, right? So yeah. like, even if your movie doesn't make money back, hopefully there's other things that come back that are worth something, you know? And as long as you're not causing pain, you're learning from it, you know, all the money in the world, you can't take it with you when you die anyway. So, you know, that's sort of my philosophy is just, yeah. okay, it costs money to make movies. That's the way it is. But, you know, you get so much out of making movies and you get to oh. share with other people and, you know, all that kind of thing. It's just, there's nothing I would rather do. So, you know. Well, I don't regret it. I don't. Yeah, no, and I didn't mean to apply that you do, right? I was very careful with my investors, right? So yeah. one investor came on board in exchange for access to my information on casting and distribution. Yeah. So it's like, I felt uh, like as long as I kept on looping him into the process, I was upholding my end of the bargain. Mm. And... I made the best deals I could, like the, you got part of the MG, you got part of the licensing fee from Showtime, every little bit of money, you know, like he got a part of. My other investor is actually one of my like producers for life. She, mm. I met her on Bread and Butter. She helped produce Speed of Life. Her husband invested in Speed of Life. And now she's working on Best Friends Forever. So I haven't, I haven't killed that relationship, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. so I don't feel like, oh, I fucked over so many people. I've right. destroyed lives. <laughs> I feel like I feel like I did right by the yep. process. And it would be a lot different if people were like breathing down my neck, getting angry at me, yeah. feeling like I owed them something. Yeah. And and again, just you know, my take on that is you should never put yourself in a position where that can happen anyway. Yeah. You should never put yourself in a position where somebody can get angry because you lost their money making a film that they were expecting to make money back. That's if you yeah. if you do, you've done something wrong, you know. Um, so yeah, that's cool. And you know, I would say that like making half your money back these days it's pretty good. Right. It's you know? still kind of I mean, a success. There's big filmmakers who make films and yeah, they get half their money back. I don't I don't like the very first person I interviewed for this podcast, I'm sure you know Dan Mervish, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what he talked about. He talked about how and he makes movies I think are like, you know, in the million dollar budget range, something like that. Uh, maybe you know more than I do. I don't know, but anyway, you know, he has these investors that I think regularly invest and I asked him about how he does and he says he makes about half and he said it very cheerfully and joyfully. And he said his investors are very cheerful and joyful about making half their money back. And, you know, like this is just par for his course and that's how he makes his movies, you know, so. I, and he's like, I know Dan fairly well. We've had yeah. a few phone calls. He's been on the podcast and yeah. I think he and I are very similar in that we never turn down an opportunity for self-promotion. Right. <laughs> and we will market ourselves till the end of time. And I think that is also why he has so many people in his corner, right? They yep. see that he's passionate and dedicated. And yeah. and that's what I take away from him is just like, yeah. I don't know if you watch him on Twitter, but he will turn every thread yes. into a promotion. So like, right. I, I totally, totally. It's anything about, yeah, anything about politics, anything about, <laughs> I don't know, movies, whatever. Like, yeah, he, he'll reply with, uh, well, then check out 18 and a half, you know? So, yeah. And here we are talking about his movie right now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how did he do that? <laughs> anyway. Dan Mervish. Uh, right. Exactly. 
So if we could, let's take a step back then and talk about your experience with Sundance, uh, the Creative Distribution Initiative, because I know that's very relevant and relevant to, you know, people talk about it a lot. I've had several people that I've interviewed on the show that have talked about it. So yeah, take us to talk about that experience and, and, you know, what happened there, what you did. Yeah. I saw a job listing at Sundance called Artist Services Manager. Uh So there was this department at Sundance that helped Sundance filmmakers with crowdfunding campaigns. And then they had a digital distribution deal with an aggregator called Premier Digital that people may have heard of. They have a little platform called Quiver that no longer accepts titles, but they still operate and I think pay their filmmakers who have worked with them. Yeah. But point being, I think most of us who want to work in an independent film, Sundance is just one of those bright and shiny things where I'm just like, oh, I've always wanted to be associated, work with, do something. And so when it came up, I was very, very excited just to even work at Sundance. And then I talked to my boss about it and it was this distribution consultant I'd worked with for like three years. And he was like, yeah, I think you'd be a good fit for this. Hmm. No, I think this. So with his support, with the support of the former manager, friend of mine who worked at Sundance, I really fought to get that job not fully knowing the trajectory of what that job was going to be. So I mm-hmm. thought it was just, I've done crowdfunding. I understand distribution. Let me consult with filmmakers. I get there and like maybe a few months after I start my job, the department changes names twice. And then my director decides we're going to launch a fellowship in self-distribution. Mm-hmm. And it was a very, very landmark fellowship yeah. that if you're a distribution nerd, it's a big deal. So I was incredibly proud to be part of it. But so the idea is filmmakers sign NDAs and you can't talk about how well your film is done in a public forum. You can't share data transparently. That's why there is no data transparently. Mm-hmm. Sundance is going to fund a handful of films at the time was the the plan. And we're going to document the entire case study of their release and publish it in exchange for giving them, I think it was $75,000. And then also we would tee up an SVOD deal for them too. So it was like this combination. We were essentially self-distributing with Sundance. The program changed, you know, it evolved. And then the day I came back from maternity leave, of uh, my first child, they told me they were dissolving the departments. Oh boy. <laughs> so I was there for the entire tenure of the entire department, which was three years. And the case studies I just want to note were written by Jess Fusilay. I think I get de facto credit for writing these case studies, which I do I did not write them. Jess okay. Fusilay is the brilliant person behind the case studies and she wrote them. And the whole sorry, I forgot about this too. <laughs> Sundance tried to do something before this. They tried to do something called the Transparency Project, mm-hmm. where they were going to create a widget based off of data from studios, where you input your budget, your genre, you put all this information, and it was supposed to output projections based off of the data that it was going to get on mass from mm-hmm. the studios. The studios were too cagey to share information. And ultimately, for many different reasons, the transparency project never really happened. So this was our response is to do qualitative, to do case studies, to Mm -hmm. do one-off 
pieces of evidence and how you can self-distribute and how you can put together a team and how you can release your film right. without uh, necessarily giving all your rights away. Yeah. Can you take us through like just briefly, like what those case studies were, you know, kind of, I don't know, any kind of conclusions that you draw from it, anything that you learned that you think is kind of relevant today from your experience with that? Well, I mean, the thing is Sundance wanted the case studies to be successful. So right. I would say the curation of the films was very interesting political process, mm -hmm. right? They needed to be Sundance Film Festival films the first year. And I think the second year we deviated a little bit. We're like, oh, here's a South by title. Mm -hmm. um, but like for one of the films, Columbus, which was a very high, high regarded film by Coconata starring John Cho and Haley Lou Richardson, they made so much money theatrically hmm. and they did a deal with landmark and hmm. i would just say like the takeaways are that a micro budget indie filmmaker is not going to have the same resources mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as the sundance self-distributed fellow yeah. it's just there you can try to replicate the efforts but it's a very right. very different machine all of the films proved that you could make meaningful impact or revenue mm -hmm. without the help of a distributor and that yeah. filmmakers know their content best and that we should be trusted more. Mm. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. It's kind of like, I don't know, geeking out here a little bit, but like sort of the Heisenberg effect, right? Like when you observe it, it changes it. Right. Oh. Uh, you know, <laughs> so I don't even it, know that I'm not. Uh, okay. I'm, sorry. Um, yeah. Like I said, I'm geeking out here, but, um, uh, but it, it like just by, by elevating it to that level of being associated with Sundance and being part of this study, you're kind of losing the objectivity of the study. Like what would happen if it wasn't associated with Sundance okay. and, and that kind of thing. So, and we you know. team them up. Like we yeah. had a, yeah, yeah. a call where we're like, here's some theatrical bookers you might like. And then theatrical right. bookers were like, Oh, maybe we could cut a special deal for you. You know, yeah. It's like it turns into a promotional effort of all the teammates. They may reduce their fees to work with these films. They may be working even harder because they know it's being documented exactly what you're talking about. And I would say I think the reason we got even more attention is that Jim Cummings of Thunder Road was one of our fellowship films. Mm -hmm. And I fought for him and I, I didn't have to fight hard because everyone was very happy to support Jim, mm -hmm. but just, I was desperate. All I kept talking about my entire time at Sundance was like, where's the replicable case study for the micro budget film? Mm. Why can't we have a film that's under $700,000? Why can't yeah. we have a film that's 300, 200? And when Jim won, I think it was the jury award, but maybe it was the, I think it was the jury award at South by it kind of greenlit us because we were really supposed to only pick Sundance movies but I would say like his amplification of our program his participation in the program did a lot for us and yeah. ultimately what I what I kept angling for was like can we support more filmmakers with smaller budgets without name cast without massive impact partners but we never got to that point. Yeah. And why is that, do you think? I don't think that helps Sundance's bottom mm -hmm. line, right? Yep. You know, it's a nonprofit, but that doesn't mean it's doesn't have to 
find funders and it doesn't have to find sponsors for the film festival. And I would say my goals were a little bit more radical than, than the Institute's goals. And it's not like I had a massive amount of power and influence and this wasn't a, a headline of working there, but it's just a recognition that these artist support programs that you, that me, that all of us apply to, they're picking films that help their bottom line. They're not picking films out of the kindness and generosity of their hearts. They're picking films that reflect their own values out into the world. And so I've found ways since to support micro-budget filmmakers, and I'm very happy doing so now. Yeah, you certainly have. (laughs) So yeah, let's let's then go to uh, your your kind of your current efforts. You know, I'm more or less well educated on what you're doing, but listeners aren't necessarily. So I know you're doing some really interesting stuff with with Best Friends Forever. So can you talk about that at all? So I'm making my third feature, and it's a horror comedy. It's co-written by Amy Taylor, who's a lovely human and wonderful writer and friend of mine. And I thought that it would be fun <laughs> to document everything from soup to nuts. A lot of that came out of meetings I had with Naomi McDougal-Jones. We have this kind of like side effort called Story Made, where we're just really trying to experiment in distribution, working outside of the system. We have weekly meetings. We brought in a few other filmmakers to form a pod, and we're all documenting the processes of our films. But I will say that I am the only one who is fully committed to showing everything at this mm-hmm. point. Yeah. And, and that's what I've done with my Patreon campaign, which thank you very much for being a part of it. <laughs> my pleasure. I'm very grateful to you. I've heard so many times through working at Sundance, through the articles I've written with Dear Producer, with the Film Collaborative on my first feature, I've I've heard so many times, there's no data out there. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to make movies. What is distribution? How do I go forward? And so I thought, well, I don't mind living in public. I'm just going to try to turn my pain and suffering into an educational effort for other filmmakers. So that, and also hold myself accountable to work as hard as possible to make this movie and get it out into the world the right way. So I'm focusing on process over outcome. Hmm. I'm trying to learn more about directing actors, uh, learn more about working with camera, really try to imagine the film before it's made and put a lot of effort in creative development instead of just getting the film done. And then I'm trying to share every resource that I think is valuable with anyone who will listen. Mm-hmm. I know that you have some ideas about distribution once it's done. Can you comment on that? Like kind of what some of your plans are mm-hmm. and and maybe why, kind of what some of the motivation is behind it? With Speed of Life, I... I hired two David Bowie cover bands. One played at our Atlanta Film Festival premiere and the other one played at our theatrical premiere at the Roxy in San Francisco. And I really saw firsthand how much value that added to the experience of getting Mm -hmm. a film out into the world. And I would have done more and I should have done more, but I didn't. And I made pins. I had a designer. I still have these pins. Uh, She created enamel pins and I brought those out and I had a baker I knew make lightning lightning bolt cookies. Like I basically did a beta test of what I want to do with speed of life. And so I feel that the more 
uniqueness, immersiveness, added value outside of the box you could bring to the release of the film, the more you can get attention, the more you can have fun, the more you can find people who want to come to things who, you know, how can I make this not just please come to my independent film, I need you, (laughs) but like, let's turn this into a rock show. Let's turn this into a carnival. Let's turn this into uh, a bake sale (laughs) or whatever. (laughs) So I plan on self-distributing Best Friends Forever. And I think I have a theory that the theatrical component is going to be very important for Mm -hmm. us especially Mm -hmm. being a horror comedy, especially coming out of a pandemic. I think we'll still be recovering from the pandemic for the next 10 years. Yes, indeed. Creating community and then also finding ways to integrate short form content, VR, whatever it is. So then it's not just me making the effort uh, marketing wise, but I'm with a team of other independent filmmakers trying to bring people to the event. Yeah, that's that's super cool, and and as you know, that's kind of like hearing about that whole plan was one of the things that attracted me to your project, attracted me to become Patreon, you know, contributor, whatever. I'm not tooting my horn for that. I'm just saying that, that like it's it's I'm really interested in that. I'm interested in kind of doing the same thing with my own project. Don't need to harp on that, but like you know, I just have said this before to you many times, but but I just kind of love what you're doing and want to follow it and see what comes of it because I think it's a great experiment and it's forward looking and it's trying to crack this nut of you know distribution of 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 micro budget distribution like how can these films that are made totally outside of the system how can they crack the nut of getting attention somehow some way you know out there from viewers so i will this this may sound a little bit loaded but i i will observe in your description of all of the things that you want to do you didn't really talk about as a way to make money off the film you talked about all of these other things, just sort of community building and having a party and things like that. I'm paraphrasing, but are you still focused on money? Are you focused on the notion that you can earn back the money on the film and make a profit for investors or, you know, that kind of thing? Can you comment on that? Money is a very important part of this. However, yeah. I'm starting to realize that I I shouldn't overpromise. Mm-hmm. Like it it could be an internal goal. It very much is an internal goal for me. I've I've been telling every single person who is thinking of investing in this film, I'm like, commodify me. I'm here to make you money. I want to be commodified. This is a product. This is the intersection of commerce and art. Let's make it together. Let's make money. But I'm trying to reduce that. Uh, rhetoric in public a little bit more because mm-hmm. I think it's not foolish, but it's like, I don't know, right? It's like, mm-hmm. I don't know what's going to happen in two years. I don't know what's going to happen yeah. in three years. I, it might be irresponsible for me to say over and over again, we're going to make money. We're going to do it. I can say that that's my goal. And yeah. my goal is to prove that artists, that this art deserves compensation. Yep. And that my team deserves compensation. But I, I'm just trying not to say what I said so much in the beginning, which is like, we're making all the money. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we're going to make all the money or I'm going to try my hardest. Yeah. So I know that you're you're still very much in the collecting finances phase of this project. So you may not be able to comment on this or may not want to comment on this. That's totally fine. Um, but as always, I appreciate your transparency. Have you had conversations with investors where you talk about that and they're kind of like, 
well, if you're not planning on making money, why should I invest? Is there any of that kind of level of cynicism in it? Oh, well, the investors, the conversations I've had with investors, let me just go through. One of them said that my budget was too high. Our budget is 400. And so his concern, I told him we want to make money. His concern was that our overhead was too high and that he wasn't going to profit from it. Someone else said that they didn't want to invest in horror, but they liked me. That was really nice of them to say, but -hmm. it's not a successful conversation with an investor. Right. A third person disappeared (laughs) after I pitched them. Yeah. I'm I'm sure that's actually probably pretty common. (laughs) They disappear. Like that's just the way it is. But And the two other people... You know, one is reading the script right now. Actually, both of them are reading the script right now. I tell them, both of them, that I want to make money, that I'm very collaborative. I'm very flexible. I understand distribution. I want to play their game too. And I'm playing, I want to play it for them. And I'm surprised. I feel like I'm a great get. Like, I'm (laughs) like shocked. Yeah. I'm like, I am like so amenable to various different ways of working together, but you know, it's a all female horror comedy. It's not a slasher film with a woman running in the woods. It's a little bit subversive. I want it to be gorgeous. You know, like I think maybe our deck imparts a level of care that maybe some horror investors aren't into. I mean, I could speculate, but I can, all I can say is that like, I don't think I've cracked even the tip of the iceberg of the amount of people I should be talking to at this Mm -hmm. point to have like a real data set. And I am not shy about telling investors that I want to make them money, but I don't tell them that I'm going to make them money. Mm -hmm. Very important point. Okay. Well, I totally appreciate your kind of your honesty on that. Yeah. It's fascinating, fascinating effort always, I think. So we can shift gears a little bit. Well, first of all, let me just ask, is there anything else that you want to say that we didn't cover about that, about your Best Friends Forever kind of campaign, what you're working on there? Uh, I want to just give you a chance to mm-hmm. get in anything you want to talk about there. I Just a recognition that my biology is also coming into play in the sense <sighs> of I th- I have a feeling that after I have this kiddo, and for those who <laughs> it's June 5th and I am almost 29 i'll be 29 weeks tomorrow you know it's it's in my mind right is is like biology and health and taking care of kiddos and i think that after i have this kiddo i'm i i'm feeling i'm gonna take a little bit of a step back from my day job and allow myself a little bit of a break and the reason i can devote the next few years of my life to distribution is that I don't think I'm going to be getting another film off the ground in the mm. next few years. Mm-hmm. Like my husband is a, a freelance post. I mean, he's, he's working for sausage party right now, but mm. he's a post uh, coordinator. So mm-hmm. he works gigs and I can't necessarily say that we're a one income family. Cause we're very much not, but it's just to say like, I think I'm going to be the primary caretaker. Mm-hmm. I think that that's going to be incredibly overwhelming. And I'm choosing instead of to get real sad about not getting films off the ground, I'm using that time to devote to distribution. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know if that's noteworthy, but to me, it's a recognition that like I'm spinning it 
a little bit in my mind, right? It, what could have been in a restriction, creative restriction, mm. you can then think of like, well, then I'm just going to go 10 times harder on the release yeah. of the film. Sure. Yeah. I mean, for what it's worth, I, I would say that like an independent filmmaker should in this day and age be prepared for a year or two, at least after they're yeah. done with their film to distribute it, even if they're not, even if they're not totally self-distributing it, you know, unless you're just going to throw it on film hub and just, you know, whatever it makes, it makes like, if you care about it and care about getting it out there like that, that's part of the process. You don't have to say goodbye to creativity when you do that. Maybe you have to say goodbye to a lot of it, <laughs> the best part of it, but there's creativity out there in marketing and distribution. And I, as a filmmaker, whether you like that or not, but if you, you know, to me anyway, if you really care about your film, that's part of making the film is engaging in that full process. So I you know, totally for what it's worth, it. like yeah. taking two years after you're done with your film, before you start thinking about making your next film seems totally normal. <laughs> it does make me uh, feel better. Know, and I also yeah. think that if I make a splash with this film and not necessarily within the system, I'm not saying I'm going to get representation. I'm not saying I'm going to get to be on shutter or whatever, but if I feel like I've made a certain level of traction and had enough screenings and feel like I was an internal success, like that is something for the future. That is yeah. a foundation for the next project. It's yep. data, right? Yep. So yep. I'm trying to look at it that way. Yep. Oh, and I think that's, kind of a running theme in in what you've done so far and what you continue to do is kind of build up your data for you know for what your next project's going to be and how it's all going to come together and I, I for what it's worth i think that's great i think that's a great yeah. approach and a way to go through this really weird journey that we call filmmaking you know so at this weird. at this level it's so weird yeah not to end on a weird note but i wanted to also talk about your article that you and naomi wrote a few months ago mm -hmm. that i think is very very relevant to what we talk about here on this podcast so why, why don't you go ahead and tell us what the article was i'll let you put it in your words uh and then i might have some comments about it and we'll go yeah. from there uh, Naomi McDougall-Jones is an amazing person and I've been working with her for the past few years and she's the person I referenced earlier that we're doing this kind of like experiments and distribution pod. In 2020, in the beginning of the pandemic, she said, can we have a Zoom? I hadn't talked to her on a regular basis. And she's like, hey, I think distribution is broken. And I was like, well, okay, well, yeah, no, I think that's accurate. That's, <laughs> but I don't think I'd ever heard anyone say that out loud. And she's like, and I think instead of trying to fix it, I have a theory that working outside of the system is the better option for independent filmmakers. And so we started just to meet weekly and we started to pull in other filmmakers to have these off the record discussions about what they've done, how they view independent film distribution. And then we started to bring in distributors so that this has been years in the making of this article, right? It's like these conversations, the building of this pod. Naomi and I created an incubator with two other women where we led a design thinking workshop to radically redesign the entire entertainment industry. And it was just this kind of like intellectual experience for several weeks with about 50 other filmmakers, I think. <laughs> and that was last summer. I think. What is time? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I don't know either. Couldn't <laughs> tell you. Don't don't ask me. <laughs> so that's on YouTube. Like our presentation yeah. day is on YouTube. And a lot of what came out of that were people feeling like the industry is toxic or being overworked, you know, all these things. We're not being paid. 
And then through my work and through her work in finance, because she runs a film fund and I work in distribution, we were like, hey, only these types of films are being funded. And all of these films are not making any money. Like Mm -hmm. she works at like top echelon of of fun, like the films that she works to fund get into Sundance. Mm -hmm. But the films that I distribute do not get into Sundance. So it's like the vast majority of independent filmmakers are not making a lot of money. So we turned it all into an editorial piece. So sorry, this is such the long, long version of the story. Um, (laughs) Where, um, thank you. Uh, Where we put out a survey, we interviewed 102 independent filmmakers, I think around that and asked them how much money they made, what windows of distribution did they make it? Um, what festivals did they get into? Do they work with a distributor? Do they work with a sales agent? We surveyed. And from that data, we turned it into a think piece on how, how the system is broken. Our theory, her theory was right. And that actually efforts and self-distribution were the most lucrative, mm. which I'm just going to acknowledge, like, if we had a thousand people, I don't know if that would mm-hmm. have been the outcome. Mm-hmm. But in our case study, in our small sample size of a hundred, that's what the data told us. Yeah, and um, basically acknowledge that like filmmakers are not making money, but we're not talking to each other about mm-hmm. how we're not making money, and then we're relying on a system. We're so desperate for approval within the system, but the system's actually not benefiting us in mm-hmm. any way. Yeah. Yeah, we've let our desperation turn everything kind of against us, you know, like by accepting valueless distribution deals and, you know, things like that, yeah. just just to get our films out there. But if everybody's doing that at the same time, then it makes it even less value. That's why I didn't necessarily want to pivot to this last just because I don't want to end on a downer. So I'm going to make sure that before we end, I'm going to end on an upper, not a downer. But we'll talk about this for a little bit. Yeah, I, I I think it's like it's a it's a great article and it it really is like something that filmmakers need to hear about more. And I will also say that like right in the middle of the article or near the top, there's a button you can push where you get the spreadsheet of the actual data that you guys have, which you shared the raw data, which is really cool too. And so you can just kind of look and see like you know, if you want to just look at horror, you can just look at horror. If you want to look at people at sales agents or whatever, like it's all, you know, it's all there. And so we need more of that, you know? And uh, it's like, <laughs> I guess the, the only thing that I wanted, which I'm not going to get, I understand this, is I want to know what all the films are <laughs> and who the filmmakers are. But I know all. It has to, I know you do, but of course <laughs> it has to remain anonymous. But like the one that, you know, there's like one that was over, you know, some level, I forget, budget that actually made money, I think. And I want to know who they are because I want to know what their film is. So maybe you'll tell me privately. Honestly, I don't remember. I do know what you're talking about, but I've (laughs) totally forgotten what the film is at this point. Right. Uh, No, it's okay. So, but anyway, it's just like, I, I love having that data available. And like, to me, like, I want to be able to take that idea and have it be a continuing thing. Like every independent filmmaker that makes a movie, make their movie, distribute it, collect your experience and put it in that spreadsheet or, you know, some other piece of software that collects it and just keeps keeps it running, keeps it going. You know, as a software engineer, I would almost like be interested in like actually writing software that would like help do that. 
Uh, <laughs> Please talk to you. We have to have a separate meeting with Naomi because okay. this yeah. is what we want. And I oh. also, this is kind of what I planned when I talked about Sundance is that they went to the distributors and they were like, can you share data on your films? Right. And this happened before I joined Sundance. But instead, we went to the filmmakers and we said, can you share data on your films? Right. Right. Because I think first of all, we've anonymized, we protected the identities. That's a big part of a lot of the work that I do is like, even though I'm pro data transparency, I'm, I don't want repercussions to fall back on my colleagues who share information. Right. So, but like for distributors, it could really, it could make them look real bad to mm-hmm. tell the truth. Right. Yep. Yep. But for independent filmmakers, it helps us all out to know how right. dire things are. Right. And I, I don't even, I mean, I agree with you. It makes them look bad, but I think it's, I think the, what we're asking for is reasonable where, you know, mm-hmm. it's not like we're just trying to victimize the distributors. We're not trying to make them into evil people. We're just trying to point out the sort of inequity that we feel as filmmakers in terms of, and again, I've told you this before, but it's like, to me, it's not about like, you know, it's still every filmmaker's job to make a good film and to make a film that people want to watch and to earn, you know, that's not something you're entitled to. It's something you have to earn is to get your film out there and get people interested in watching it. But if you do get it out there and you make money at it, like you should enjoy that success. And and the system is so stacked against filmmakers being able to collect on, on their own success that they have to turn to things like you're talking about, like self-distribution completely because the rest of the system is just so broken. Anyway, that's my, you know, that's my rant about it all. Um, no, I completely and- agree, but I also want to acknowledge that in, in this weird way, I've started to feel sorry for distributors where yeah. like I do sales and I'm, I'm get buddy, buddy with these acquisitions people. <laughs> and like, they are responsive They're I mean, I don't believe that they're screening all 90 to hundred minutes of every movie, yeah. but they're trying their best and they're overworked. They're underpaid. Yeah. They're being exploited. And they got in because they loved independent film. And now they have to serve some yeah. bottom line that they don't agree with either. Yeah. So it's, well, I don't even know. Is that top down? It's coming from the top. Right. And um, what I hate is that there really is no curation in this industry yep. and there's no real protection of quality and support of great storytelling. It's all like, is it a food documentary? Does it have sex yep. in it? Like, is there right. women being beheaded? I'm in, you know, it's, yep. it's absurd. Yeah. Or does it have this big star in it? You know, right. uh, and, and I know that you, you talk about that in quite some length on the article and that's yeah. that that's kind of a little bit of a misleading idea necessarily that, you you know, but definitely it's just it's just there's so, so much of it is based around the the hook, the marketing hook, you know, whether mm-hmm. it can be successful from a marketing standpoint. And so little is based on actual quality and sort of like the, the appreciation of audience for interesting, cool new stuff that may be flawed. It's maybe it's low budget, but it's still cool. Uh, Boundary you know. pushing. Does yeah. it upset you? Yeah. Does it make you uncomfortable? Those are good things. You yeah. want to make people uncomfortable. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And there's an audience out there for that, I think, that is striving to try to find, you know, access to these things. So, so yeah, I mean, like finding a way to collect that data and 
on a continuing basis, I think would be a pretty fascinating thing. It's sort of a, a democratic movement towards, you know, hey, distributors, this is, you know, this is what we're seeing. Or maybe not just to distributors, maybe to audiences, you know, hey, audiences, these films that you love, these independent films that you love, they're really struggling right now. Or, or you know, it's hard for us to bring them to you because even the good ones, we make so little money at it, you know. So anyway, food for thought. Any any more to say on that? Uh, again, I, like I, my listeners, go out there, read the article. You know, search for Liz Manishill, Naomi McDoodle Jones, filmmaker magazine distribution article or whatever. You know, you can find it. I found it, <laughs> but go out there and read it. I, it's like don't even listen to this podcast before you read it. Read it first because it's so helpful and informative. I think and, and important for filmmakers today. <laughs> so, I but, I yeah. like what you said about how it could be for audiences. I remember. Yeah. For my first feature, I really wanted the song from Allo Darlin for my opening theme. I got it, but they said no at first. They're like, you are an independent filmmaker. You have movies. You have a budget. Why can't you pay us more than this, what you're offering? And yeah. I wrote a whole letter being like, actually, here's my entire budget, and here's what we can afford, and here's why. And and it's like they didn't know, and they were like, yeah. oh, cool, take the song. You right. know, it's like wow. there there's this idea of – um like luxury and I'm just thinking of Robin Leach right now. I, I was thinking of mansions, <laughs> but that film industry is what it's not, you know? Yeah. So yeah. I like the idea of it's not just independent filmmakers who need to hear this information. It's audiences who mm-hmm. don't understand the WGA writer strike who, yep. Yep. you know, it's all these people who don't get that what they enjoy does have monetary value. Yeah, for sure. Great. Anything else to say on that, on that article? Anything else to say generally? I told you we'd talk for an hour and a half. It was easy. I feel like I'd talk for another half hour. But, you know, if there's anything you think we didn't cover that you want to cover, now's your chance because I always want to make sure that, you know. No, no, this is great. <laughs> we covered like, a lot of stuff. So Yeah, yeah. I like yeah. I like that feeling where you talk so much that like your throat is scratchy and I have that. And I'm like, right. oh, this is great. This I got that, th- that throat feeling. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. No, it's a good <laughs> feeling. No. I used to smoke and, and like oh, it kind okay. of brings back my smoking days. It brings back memories of smoking, just what you want. <laughs> uh, great. And then, uh, you know, not that not that nobody can find you on the internet if they go looking, but any contact information you want to leave or any... any oh, yeah. I mean, stuff. I'm going to go dark soon, but I'm and I'm trying to avoid Twitter, <laughs> but Twitter's at, at Liz Womanichelle or at Liz Manichelle, depending on the handle versus the username, but it's at Liz Manichelle. Um, you find me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Slated. You can find me on Slated oh, yeah. now. Yeah. Ultimately, I'm a pretty open book and I respond to everyone because I'm <laughs> desperate for everyone to like me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, you know, as always, I appreciate your honesty and kind of the way you put it all out there. You share your life with us. You know, it's it's great. I always have fun talking to you. So me too. this Good was you. the same. All right, that's all for today. Thanks, everybody, for listening. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating and or reviewing the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Uh, That is the best way that you can help me grow the show and reach a wider audience of independent filmmakers and others who just want to try to understand this crazy, crazy world of independent film distribution today. Uh, As always, feel free to contact me directly with any feedback or suggestions for the show, people you'd like to see me interview, or even just to say hi. You can reach me on Twitter or Instagram at DarkRoseColin, or you can email me at Colin at DarkRosePictures.com. 
Uh, and by the way, darkrosepictures.com is my website for my feature and other projects, and its purpose is not just to promote my films, but to tell the story with full honesty and transparency of my own personal filmmaking journey. Uh, so if you want to follow the process of an independent filmmaker from development to distribution, this is a great way to do that. Uh, it's a bit different from other websites that are out there, I hope, with uh, a little bit more emphasis on discussion and interactivity so fans can follow my work and communicate with me directly along the way. So check it out, darkrosepictures.com. Uh, anyway, that is, as usual, enough of my own self-promotion. I want to thank Jesse Browder for his work on editing this podcast. Uh, and a big thank you to Liz Manischel for a, an, an awesome and interesting and lively conversation. Uh, I have more great guests lined up in the coming weeks talking all things indie distribution. So stay tuned, keep making movies, keep getting movies out there into the world. And thanks so much for listening. Listening.